Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we'll be discussing the disappearance of SS Waratah, a passenger and cargo steamship that vanished with all 211 passengers and crew aboard and is still missing to this day. If you'd like to hear more about this strange disappearance, stay tuned. Quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Please keep in mind that I'm not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I've done my research. Okay everyone, let's get into it. SS Waratah was ordered by her owners, W. London Sons, in September of 1907, and they ordered the ship through Barclay Curl of Glasgow, Scotland, wanting a new passenger and cargo liner for their fleet. This ship was going to serve their Blue Anchor line trade between the UK and Australia, and they needed the ship within 12 months. The ship would cost £139,900 and was to be an improved version of their existing steamship, SS Geelong. So the ship's specs were based upon that. She was laid down in yard number 472 of Barclay Curls' Clyde Home Yard in Whiteinch, being sponsored by the wife of Agent General of Victoria, Mrs. J.W. Taverner. SS Wartaw was 465 feet long, had a beam of 59 feet and 4 inches wide, and a depth of 27 feet in imperial measurements. In metric measurements, that's a length of 141.73 meters, a beam of 18.08 meters wide, and a depth of 8.23 meters. For her tonnage, she displaced 9,339 gross registered tons in internal volume, had a cargo volume capacity of 6,004 net registered tons, and a dead weight tonnage of 10,000 tons, which is the weight a ship can carry. She was built with a steel hull divided into eight watertight compartments along with a cellular double bottom along her entire length. With this setup, she was deemed, quote, practically immune from any danger of sinking. Hmm, where else have we heard that garbage before? SS Waratah had two sets of quadruple expansion steam engines, which provided a combined 1,003 horsepower to drive her two screw propellers. With this setup, she could achieve 13.5 knots, which is 15.5 miles per hour and 25 kilometers per hour. Her home port was London, England, and her UK official number was 125741, with her call sign being HNGM. SS Waratah was named after the emblem flower of New South Wales, Australia, and this name appears to be cursed. Why, you might ask? Well, a ship which previously had that name was lost off the island of Ushant in the English Channel in 1848, and yet another ship of this same name had been lost in 1887 on a voyage to Sydney, Australia. It wasn't just these two, however. There was a second ship lost just south of Sydney and one in the Gulf of Carpentaria in 1897. Essentially, the name Waratah being associated with a ship is just bad luck waiting to happen. Let's talk about her capacity and design just a bit more. She was built for speed and luxury, so her fine finishings and efficiency are quite important. SS Waratah had spar decks, having three complete decks, the lower deck, main deck, and spar deck. 
A spar deck ship is a ship for both cargo and passengers that has two or more decks of lighter construction above the strength deck, for those wondering. Her first-class accommodations were built on the promenade, bridge, and boat decks, and here she could comfortably house 128 first-class passengers. There was even a nursery added on SS Warsaw for the first-class passengers' convenience, and in all of my time researching ships from this era, this is the first I've heard of a nursery. A playroom, sure, but a nursery? That's awesome. SS Waratah also had third-class accommodations located on the poop deck that was built to house upward of 300 passengers, but was only ever certified to house 160. As part of her decadence, she had eight staterooms and a salon clad in panels depicting the Waratah flowers, as well as a music lounge fitted with a minstrel's gallery. A minstrel, for anyone curious, was an entertainer in medieval Europe, and this described entertainers of many types like musicians, jugglers, fools, or acrobats. Later in the 16th century, it became a term used to describe a specialist entertainer who sang songs and played musical instruments. For her total capacity, she had 432 passenger cabin berths, plus well over 600 spaces in dormitory space. As for her crew, she averaged 154 people. The same with most ocean liners at the time, SS Warthaw's bread and butter was to be the immigrant trade, and for this, her massive cargo holds could be converted into large dormitories capable of holding up to 700 steerage passengers on journeys to Australia. However, on her return journeys, these cargo holds would be stocked with frozen meat, dairy products, metal ore, and wool from Australia. To keep frozen products cold, she was equipped with refrigerating machinery and cold chambers in her entire front end. She was even fitted with a Kirkcaldy's distilling apparatus, which was capable of producing up to 25,000 liters of fresh water daily. At this time, SS Warthaw did not have a radio, and this was normal for the time period. She was launched on September 12, 1908, and her sea trials were held on October 23, 1908 on the Firth of Clyde. During her sea trials, SS Waratah was able to achieve a mean speed of 15 knots, which is 17 miles per hour and 28 kilometers per hour. She was successful in completing her sea trials, and she was transferred to her owners on the same day, immediately leaving Scotland for London. As for her service history, we will start with her maiden voyage. SS Waratah left London, England on her maiden voyage on November 5, 1908, with 689 third-class passengers and 67 first-class passengers, being commanded by Captain Joshua Edward Ilbury. Ilbury was a veteran of the Blue Anchor Line with 30 years of nautical experience, and he'd previously mastered SS Geelong, and he was accompanied by a crew of 154. She called at Cape Town on November 27, 1908, arriving safely at Adelaide in South Australia on December 15, 1908. For this first maiden voyage, she had three famous passengers aboard. Dr. Anderson, Bishop of Riverina, Hamilton Wicks, a newly appointed British Trade Commissioner for the Commonwealth, and Octavius Beale, the President of the Federal Council of Chambers of Manufacturers. So, the maiden voyage must have gone swimmingly, right? Wrong. During this maiden voyage, SS Waratah's second officer reported a small fire in the lower starboard bunker extending all the way to the engine room early in the morning on December 6, 1908. The fire was brought under control for the most part around noon that same day, but it continued to reignite until December 10, 1908. 
Apparently, the fire was caused by the heat being emitted by several steam and reducing valves on the starboard side of the engine room. And while the actual engine room was well insulated, the starboard side did not appear to be. Repairs were made in Sydney to the chief engineer's satisfaction before she could return to London. From Adelaide, SS Warrantaw made her way to Melbourne and Sydney before heading back for London on January 9, 1909 via the Colony of Natal and Cape Colony ports. Her cargo holds were full of foodstuffs, 1,500 tons of metal concentrates, and wool. On March 7, 1909, she arrived in London safely, rounding out her maiden voyage. She unloaded her cargo before heading into dry dock to be inspected by the Lloyd's inspector, and she underwent some minor repairs to bring her up to par. Usually I don't say there's tea, which is slang for gossip or inside information in this story, but there's a bit of tea here, and we're going to spill it. During her maiden voyage, Captain Ilberry and his crew heavily scrutinized SS Wartoff for several reasons. One of the major reasons was the ship's handling and stability, which is criteria she has to pass in her sea trials, and she apparently had. According to Ilberry, it was less than satisfactory, especially when compared to the Geelong, the ship Waratah was based upon and one that Ilberry had previously mastered and approved of. Waratah was not nearly as stable as Geelong, and it was incredibly difficult to properly load her to maintain stability. After sharing his thoughts, there was a heated exchange between the builders and the owners of Waratah after she'd returned home to London. The inquiry after her disappearance brought this conversation about instability to light, and we'll cover the inquiry later. After her minor repairs were done, SS Waratah prepared for her second voyage to Australia, leaving on April 27, 1909. Aboard the ship were 22 first-class passengers and 193 steerage passengers, with 119 crew and a large cargo of what is described as general merchandise. In total, there were 334 people aboard SS Wartaw on this second voyage. The trip to Australia was uneventful, and she touched off in Cape Town, South Africa on May 18th before continuing to Adelaide, arriving there safely on June 6th. In Adelaide, she'd take on approximately 970 tons of lead ore, and then she'd continue onward to Melbourne, pushing through a strong gale. Because of the inclement weather, she had a tough time arriving in Melbourne and finally docked there on June 11th. She'd move forward to Sydney, and there she loaded all of the cargo she needed for her return voyage, and this consisted of wool, dairy, flour, frozen meat, and roughly 7,800 bars of bullion. If you don't know what bullion is, it's gold or silver in bulk before coining, and it's valued by weight. She left Sydney on June 26th, stopping one last time in Melbourne and Adelaide to finish her cargo loading, leaving Adelaide on July 7th, heading toward Durban and Cape Town before heading back to England. She had roughly 100 passengers on board, as well as a convict that was being extradited to Transvaal Colony alongside two escorting Transvaal policemen. If you don't know what extradition is, it is the action of handing over a person accused or convicted of a crime to the jurisdiction of the foreign state in which the crime was committed. If you want to hear a good example of that, check out our video on SS Laurentic where we talk about the extradition of two murderers aboard a White Star Line ship. On the morning of July 25th, SS Waratah docked in Durban, South Africa. One passenger, an engineer and experienced sea traveler named Claude G. Sawyer, disembarked here and sent the following cable to his wife back home in London, quote, Thought Wartaw top-heavy, landed Durban. This is important, so keep this in mind for later. 
He'd later testify to the London Inquiry that he'd booked passage on Warsaw through to Cape Town, but he'd gotten off a stop early in Durban because he was nervous about the way Warsaw behaved during the voyage. He also said he was disturbed by visions he'd seen in his dreams during the voyage of a man, quote, dressed in a very peculiar dress, which I had never seen before, with a long sword in his right hand, which he seemed to be holding between us. In the other hand, he had a rag covered with blood. Ominous, indeed. He claimed these visions to be a warning to him to leave the ship at the earliest opportunity, and so he did. This last-minute decision would spare him his life, and SS Waratah was last seen leaving Durban at approximately 8.15 p.m. on July 26, 1909, with 211 passengers and crew aboard. Okay, folks, we're going to cover her disappearance, and a lot of it is he said, she said, and secondary source information, so keep that in mind. This ship has never been located, so we still don't know what exactly happened to her. At around 4 a.m. on July 27th, SS Warsaw was seen astern on the starboard side by Clan McIntyre, a Clan Line steamship. Warsaw was faster than this ship, and so she was level with Clan McIntyre around 6 a.m., and both vessels communicated by signal lamp and exchanged customary information with one another, like the name and destination of their respective ships. Warsaw was going roughly 13 knots, overtaking Clan McIntyre near the mouth of the Bashi River on the southeast coast of the colony of Natal. Clan McIntyre was able to see her until she steamed off into the horizon around 9.30 a.m. This is the last confirmed sighting of SS Warsaw, with the weather quickly deteriorating later that day. It's not uncommon for the weather to quickly change near Cape Agulhas, South Africa. We've covered two stories with bad weather in this area, the sinking of MTS Oceanos and the sinking of São José Paquete, Africa. Check both of those out in the cards for this video. According to the captain of Clan McIntyre, it was the worst weather he'd ever experienced at sea in his 13 years as a seaman, with the winds exceptionally strong and churning up enormous swells in the sea. We do have to note there were several other alleged sightings of SS Warsaw, but none of them have been confirmed. At around 5.30 p.m. on July 27th, a steamer called the Harlow saw smoke on the horizon, presumably from another steamship. Instantly, the captain and crew were concerned because it seemed to be an abnormally large amount of smoke, leading the captain to wonder if the ship was possibly on fire. As darkness fell over the sea, the crew of Harlow were still able to see the running lights of the steamship approaching, but it was about 10 to 12 miles or 16 to 19 kilometers behind them. Without warning, they saw two bright flashes from the direction they'd seen the steamer, and then the running lights vanished. Harlow's captain assumed they were explosions, but the mate of Harlow thought they were brush fires on shore, which was common at that time of year in that area. The captain agreed with the mate and they didn't even enter these events in the log, and he only thought it significant when he heard of the disappearance of Waratah in that area. At this time, Harlow was reportedly 180 miles or 290 kilometers away from Durban. Oddly enough, that same evening around 9.30pm, the Gelf, a Union Castle Line ship, was heading north toward Durban from the Cape of Good Hope, and she passed a ship and exchanged signals by lamp. Because of bad weather and visibility being so poor, it was hard to make anything out and the crew were only able to identify the last three letters of her name as T-A-H. Sounds like SS Warta to me. 
There was another possible sighting, which was undisclosed to the London Inquiry at that time, and it was by Edward Joe Conker, a Cape-mounted rifleman, which were South African military units, and on July 28th, he was posted to carry out military exercises on the banks of the mouth of the Zora River along with signaler H. Adshead. He'd write in his diary that he and Adshead had seen a steamship through a telescope that matched the description of Wartaw, and it appeared to be struggling slowly in the heavy swells heading in a southwesterly direction. He said the ship rolled heavily to starboard and was unable to right itself before another wave rolled the ship over, and then it disappeared from his view after this. This led Conker to believe the ship had foundered, and he did report his sightings to his base camp and to his orderly sergeant, though this matter wasn't taken seriously, and so he didn't come forward with his story until 1929. SS was supposed to reach Cape Town, South Africa on July 29, 1909, however, she never made it, and no one has seen hide nor hair of her since. Initially, it wasn't frightening that SS Warthaw didn't arrive in port that day. It wasn't uncommon for ships at the time to be days or even weeks overdue. Wartaw was considered unsinkable, which we know was always a bad moniker to give a ship, and so it was assumed that she was delayed due to a breakdown or mechanical fault and was still drifting. Though fears were validated when ships coming from Durban after Wartaw had arrived and not seen Wartaw en route. The first search effort was launched on August 1st, 1909, with the tugboat T.E. Fuller being sent out to look for any sign of SS Wartaw. She was forced to turn back after encountering horrific weather, and she would later return to search along the coast. The Royal Navy cruisers HMS Pandora and HMS Forte were deployed, with HMS Hermes joining them later. Hermes, near where the last sighting of Wartaw was described, encountered enormous waves that were so large and hefty that it strained her hull and she had to be placed in dry dock upon returning to port. For me, if a military vessel struggles in heavy seas like this, then a cargo and passenger ocean liner that already has had reported issues with stability stands no chance. On August 10, 1909, a cable from the colony of Natal reached Australia, and it read, quote, Blue Anchor vessels sighted a considerable distance out, slowly making for Durban, could be the Wartaw. The chair of the House of Representatives in the Australian Parliament halted proceedings to read out the cable, declaring, quote, Mr. Speaker has just informed me that he has news on reliable authority that the SS Wartaw has been sighted making slowly towards Durban. In Adelaide, celebratory bells were rung out throughout town, but unfortunately, the ship that was sighted was not Wartaw. Several other ships in the area joined in searching for Waratah, including the Geelong, which deviated from her original course from Cape Town to Adelaide, searching the waters east of Colony of Natal, where Waratah was thought to be possibly adrift. Gosler, a German steamship, was also keeping a special lookout for Waratah for 1,262 miles of ocean, while en route from Port Elizabeth to Melbourne, which is 2,031 kilometers. The steamship in Siswa reported seeing bodies off the mouth of the Bashi River near where the last confirmed sighting of Wartaw was, and this was on August 13, 1909. The captain of the Tottenham also allegedly sighted bodies in the water more than two weeks after Wartaw disappeared, and the tug Harry Escombe was sent out to search these areas for these bodies, but none were found. However, the tug did find objects which resembled human bodies when floating in the water, and it turned out to be dead skates, which are a type of sea ray. Despite all this misfortune, people were still hoping that Waratah was afloat and drifting somewhere. 
This hope was bolstered when the steamer SS Waikato, which had broken down in 1899 off the Cape, had drifted for over 100 days and over 2,500 miles, or 4,000 kilometers, before she was discovered and towed to Australia. Waratah did have enough provisions to last her over a year, but she didn't have radio equipment, like we said earlier, and so she was unable to contact other ships if they were out of visual range. In September of 1909, the Blue Anchor Line chartered Sabine, a cargo ship from the Union Castle Line, in order to continue searching for SS Waratah. Sabine was specially fitted out with searchlights and other equipment, searching over 14,000 miles, or 23,000 kilometers, zigzagging across the drift path of the Waikato, but there was no luck finding Warta. With no sight of her after four months, Warta was officially posted as missing at Lloyd's of London on December 15, 1909. In early 1910, relatives of Warta's passengers made one last-ditch effort to locate her chartering the Wakefield. Wakefield conducted a search for four months covering 15,000 miles, or 24,000 kilometers, and this again turned up nothing. There's been no confirmed bodies or wreckage from the Waratah to date, though there are numerous unconfirmed reports out there. It was reported in March of 1910 that there was wreckage found at Mossel Bay, South Africa. Allegedly, a life preserver with the name Waratah sprawled across it washed up on the coast of New Zealand in February of 1912. In 1925, Lieutenant D.J. Roos of the South African Air Force reported he'd spotted a wreck when flying over the Transki coast, and in his opinion, this wreck had to be that of SS Waratah. Allegedly, in 1939, Pieces of timber and cork that were possibly from Waratah washed up near East London, South Africa, but again, none of this is confirmed. There would be an inquiry into the disappearance and presumed sinking, and it was held at Caxton Hall in London in December of 1910. Less than two years later, the inquiry into Titanic sinking would also be held here. Quickly, this inquiry focused in on the apparent instability of SS Waratah, as brought up by her captain like we mentioned earlier. Evidence into this was hampered greatly by the lack of any survivors or witnesses from the ship's final voyage, other than the small number that disembarked like Claude Sawyer. Most evidence that was presented came from the crew and passengers of Warta's maiden voyage, those who'd handled her in port and her builders. Interestingly, the expert witnesses that were brought in all agreed that SS Warta had been designed and built properly and that she sailed in good condition. She'd been able to pass a myriad of inspections, including those done by her builders, her owners, the Board of Trade, and two by Lloyds of London. And they'd even given her the Plus 100 A1 classification, which is their top rating. This was only granted to ships that Lloyds had inspected and assessed throughout the design, construction, fitting out, and sea trials. And this was on top of the two inspections they'd already done on her. Despite what experts claimed about her, witnesses who'd previously traveled on SS Waratah testified that the ship felt unstable, rolled excessively, listed to one side even in calm conditions, and was extremely slow to come upright after leaning into a swell. Not only this, but her bow had a tendency to dip into oncoming waves rather than ride over them or cut through them. One passenger on her maiden voyage was quoted as saying that she developed a list to starboard to such an extent that water would not run out of the baths while she was in the Southern Ocean. And Waratah held this list for several hours before finally riding herself and settling down to a similar list on the other side. 
This passenger happened to be physicist Professor William Bragg, and he concluded that the ship's metacenter, or the measurement of initial static stability of a floating body, was just below her center of gravity. When she'd rolled toward one side or the other, she reached a point of equilibrium and would stay leaning over until a shift in the sea or wind would push her back. This is very concerning, and I've personally never heard of a ship behaving like this. Other crew members and passengers would comment on her lack of stability, with those working in port that were responsible for handling the ship saying she was so unstable when she was unladen that she couldn't be moved without her ballast tanks full. For every witness who said she was unstable, another came forward who said the exact opposite, and so the debate continued. Former passengers and crew came forward saying SS Waratah was more than stable, an easy role, and very comfortable. Some even said she felt more stable than other ships, oddly enough, and the ship's builders were able to bring forward calculations proving that even with a load of coal on her deck, she wasn't top-heavy. This is important because several witnesses claimed she was carrying coal on deck when she left Durban. Due to the mixed and contradictory evidence, the inquiry wasn't able to draw any viable conclusions. The Blue Anchor line wasn't blamed, but there were negative remarks made about some of the company's practices when it came to determining a ship's performance and seaworthiness. Correspondence between the Blue Anchor line's managers and Captain Ilbury show that he made several comments about the ship's cabins, fixtures, public rooms, fittings, ventilation, and other areas, but he did not mention the ship's seaworthiness or handling. At the same time, the company also never asked Ilbury what his opinion was on either of these things. Speculation has risen about why this is, but the most common opinion is that neither Captain Ilbury or Blue Anchor Line felt the need to cover these areas, being SS Waratah was based upon the highly successful SS Geelong, and so their handling was considered one in the same. We do have to note there was speculation that Ilbury did have concerns about the ship's handling and deliberately never brought it up, but that's never been proven. Many passenger ships in the Edwardian era were slightly top-heavy, so Waratah also being top-heavy wasn't necessarily anything abnormal. Top-heavy ships had a long, comfortable, but unstable roll, and most passengers preferred this over a short, jarring, but stable roll. Many transatlantic ocean liners were designed like this, and after a few voyages with the ship, the crew and other operators could generally get a feel for how to load, ballast, and handle them, making it possible for many of these ships to have decades upon decades of trouble-free service to the public. It might have just been bad luck that SS Wartaw ran into such an unusually heavy and difficult storm to weather on her second voyage before her crew and operators had a chance to trim correctly. This slightly top-heavy design could also be to blame for the wildly different opinions of witnesses about her stability, with an inexperienced or uninformed person feeling that the long, slow, and soft roll of the ship felt more comfortable, and therefore safe. On the other side of the coin, someone who is more seafaring would notice the same motion and feel it unstable and unsafe. There could be some truth to what witnesses said about her instability when unladen, however, almost all ocean-going ships need to be ballasted to some extent when they are moved unladen, since they are all designed to carry a large weight of cargo. Witnesses, of course, knew this, and this made the ship's notable instability that much more notable. As we know, SS Warthog was not just a passenger ship, she was also a cargo ship. 
Passenger liners that have a small cargo volume relative to their gross register tonnage have much more constant and predictable ballasting requirements than those like Wartaw, which could carry a wide range of cargoes, even changing cargoes on a single voyage. And this makes ballasting not only more complex, but essential to the safety of everyone aboard. When she disappeared, SS Wartaw was laden with a cargo of 1,000 tons of lead concentrate, and if that suddenly shifted in the heavy seas, it could have caused the ship to capsize. Though we don't know exactly what happened to SS Wartaw, there are some main theories that researchers use to explain the disappearance and assumed sinking of the vessel. We are going to cover four of them. The freak wave theory, the cargo shift theory, the explosion theory, and finally the whirlpool theory. In my opinion, and remember that I'm not a mariner, nor have I ever had any formal education in the field of maritime history, I believe these are listed in order of likeliness. Let's start with the freak wave theory. It's just what you think it is. While on the coast of South Africa, SS Wartam might have encountered a freak wave, also known as a rogue wave. These types of waves are common in this area of the ocean, where the Southern Atlantic Ocean and the Sub-Antarctic Indian Ocean meet. In this theory, SS Wartaw, with her marginal stability and heavy cargo, was already plowing through a difficult storm when she'd be struck by a giant wave. This would either roll the ship over outright and capsize it, or cave in the cargo hatches, quickly filling the holds with thousands of tons of water and pulling the ship down almost immediately. If she'd capsized, this would explain why we didn't see any bodies or floating debris, as it would have all been trapped beneath the ship. This theory is credible due to a paper written by Professor Mallory of the University of Cape Town in 1973 that suggests this rogue wave to be up to 20 meters, or 66 feet tall. And this is credible because of waves of this gargantuan stature are common between Richards Bay and Cape Agulhas in South Africa. Even if Wartaw had been entirely seaworthy and stable, this would still hold water since several ships near the Cape of Good Hope have been either severely damaged or nearly sunk by freak waves flooding their cargo holds. If you want to hear about a ship that broke up and sank within minutes due to severe weather, check out our episode on SS El Faro, a cargo freighter that sank in a hurricane in 2015. We do have to note that some continue this theory, suggesting that instead of outright sinking, SS Wartaw was sent adrift after being incapacitated by the rogue wave. And after losing her rudder and having no way to contact land, she was swept south toward Antarctica. There, she'd face the fate of either being lost in the open ocean or foundering in Antarctica itself. There's been no evidence to support this theory except for the absence of the ship itself, so keep that in mind. Let's move on to our next theory, the cargo shift theory. SS Waratah had around 1,000 tons of lead concentrate and 300 tons of lead ore concentrate in her cargo holds, and in some circumstances, it can liquefy because of the rocking motions of a ship. If it were to liquefy, it would affect the ship's stability because of the free surface effect, which would cause the ship to capsize. The freeze surface effect is a mechanism which can cause a watercraft to become unstable and capsize. Today, ore concentrate is treated as hazardous cargo because of this reason, and special requirements are needed to transport it aboard ships. In 1909, however, little was known about these hazards. The explosion theory is based upon evidence we covered earlier. Remember the Harlow and her crew seeing the enormous flashes and then the ship's lights disappearing? 
Well, based upon this, it's been speculated that SS Warta was destroyed by a sudden, massive explosion in one of her coal bunkers. Coal dust can self-combust in the right conditions, and if there is the right proportions of coal dust to oxygen in the air, it can be highly explosive. However, it would take more than one coal bunker exploding to sink a ship as large as SS Warta instantly without any lifeboat or life raft being able to launch, and without leaving any trace of the ship. While this is more likely than a whirlpool, this is still much less likely than our previous two theories. And our final theory is the whirlpool theory, and it's a lot less likely than our previous three theories, so keep that in mind. At the time of the ship's disappearance and since then, several people have suggested SS Warta was caught in a whirlpool created by the combination of currents, winds, and a deep ocean trench, several of which are reported to be off the southeast coast of Africa, near where she disappeared. Essentially, the sea flushed her like a giant toilet in this scenario. While this does explain the lack of wreckage, it's hard to explain a whirlpool large and strong enough to be able to almost instantly suck down a 450 foot long or 140 meter long ocean liner ever existing. Regardless of how SS Warta disappeared, her disappearance and the following inquiry and criticism caused a lot of negative publicity for Blue Anchor Line. They saw a massive drop in ticket sales, and this coupled with the huge financial loss taken in constructing the Warta while being severely underinsured would force the Blue Anchor Line to sell off its other ships to their main competitor, P&O, and declare voluntary liquidation in 1910. In modern times, there's been numerous attempts at locating the wreck of SS Warsaw, particularly under the leadership of Emlyn Brown. There were attempts made in 1983, 1989, 1991, 1995, and in 1997. And in 1999, reports reached newspapers that Warta had been found roughly 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles off the eastern coast of South Africa. Even a sonar scan by Emlyn Brown's team seemed to indicate this wreck was that of Waratah. However, in 2001, a dive to this particular wreck revealed it to actually be the Nail Sea Meadow, a merchant cargo ship that had been sunk by a German U-boat in World War II. In 2004, Emlyn Brown had spent 22 years looking for Waratah, and he declared he was giving up looking for her, stating, quote, I've exhausted all the options. I now have no idea where to look. As for her cultural impact, she has sadly been compared to the loss of RMS Titanic, which would sink three years later in 1912. She gained lovely monikers like the Titanic of the Southern Seas or the Titanic of the South, or even just simply Australia's Titanic. If you've been around for a while, you know how I feel about this. It's gross to compare and contrast tragedies, and so if you can, change this part of your vernacular so that the victims of both tragedies can get the respect and recognition they deserve. It's really sad because we may never know what happened to SS Waratah and the 211 people that were aboard her. Rest in peace to the victims, and I surely hope someday we find the ship so we can truly understand what happened to them. If you'd like to hear about another ship's disappearance, check out our episode on SS Neuronic, a white star liner that vanished. Thanks so much to our lovely patrons for subscribing and supporting the channel and myself as a creator. You guys are awesome and it really does help us out. If you'd like to help support this channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwrecksunday to join. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. 
If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tune in next Sunday for the story of RMS Tahiti, an ocean liner that served as a troop transport ship and suffered from an outbreak of the Spanish flu in 1918. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.